What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Doing that, I was face-to-face with it. It was holding me by my throat, and it felt like it was sucking something out of me. I probably should have been more scared than I was when I witnessed the exorcism. I turned and looked on my right side. When I did, there's there's a beam on the side of the tree, a large beam. It's looking at me and I'm looking at it. After I hit the lock button and looked back up, I saw red eyes staring back at me. That they're going to show multiple gods all over the earth, be able to speak in people's languages, and at that point, it kind of converge into this one entity, which will be revealed as extraterrestrial. You'll realize that aliens are the gods of old. And at that point, it'll wipe religion out of the context of humanity. No, it couldn't have been a person. I know that. I know that people can't run through the woods like that. So this thing comes into view, and I see it. It's 50 yards away from me. It's walking. It's walking on two legs. It's huge. This is a big, hairy-looking being. Welcome. I'm your host. And this is Uncomfortable. If you would, cover some of the more, um, some of the more fantastic, uh, experiences you've had with these beasts, these beings, I'm sorry. Um, there's been so many, Eric, it's, it's hard to nail one down. So, um, you know, and, and I've related a lot in different interviews and what I try to do is find new things that, that, um, and people have new stories people haven't really heard too much yet mm-hmm. um intimidating wise people like to hear about that stuff so um there was one out here in where i'm at now in the mesa lands in the high desert region that they had referred to as the bard monster for generations but people out here won't talk about it they don't tell stories about it it's real behind the scenes if someone's going to relate what happened did they do it with a real hush hush tone about them um, but we had been related some stories and things about one and we had ended up finding his feet print um, and they were 18, 19 inches so he's a pretty big boy and uh, and he actually uh, we were digging fossils in the Badlands south east of Tucumcari about 10 miles and encountered him and, um, and the way that was it was vocalization so we found some feet print and stuff and some marking and then we were in a really eroded area of the Badlands where there's not even a blade of grass. And the whole thing's kind of eroded the way the pattern of a brain is, but real deep. So you couldn't see over or around most of it. And the ground was real hard clay pack with little 
little roundy clay balls on it. So if you didn't watch your footing and you got on a slope, you could just roll a slide to the bottom uh-huh. and it'd tear you up pretty good. And as I was digging out the skull of a dinosaur, I heard I had I had dropped actually about a half a granola bar at a place because we had found where an emu leg had been taken up into this rock outcrop and, and munched on and the ends bit off and there was no canine marks from a, from a dog or anything and no other bone. And the emu farm's like six, seven, eight miles away. And so something had taken an emu leg over there and eaten it. And um, so we, we guess that's what it was. And then a few minutes after that, under an overhang, I left half a granola bar and I just thought, well, if there's anything out here, you know, I'll give it a little gift. Well, we continued due west from that position, and we got about six or 800 feet from that spot. Something screamed from the place I left the granola bar, and it didn't sound happy at all. And I was thinking, wow, that's, that's crazy. I mean, it was really intimidating. And so we changed directions, and we headed due north, thinking that maybe we'd just gotten its way and it would continue west. And I began to dig up this eye socket of this dinosaur, like I was saying, and all of a sudden it screamed again and maybe from a couple of hundred feet away, but it was, it was, it was deafening. You couldn't have heard your, herself think it was so loud. And, um, and so anyway, I, I was trying, it was in the evening. I was trying to get this piece of this eye socket out and I continued digging. And while I did, it kept screaming and, um, and it was really intimidating, really scary. And there was this guy, Jason Nicewanger with me and he'd never really been into anything like that before, but he was out hiking with me. And he got pretty excited, and he had a little box camera, and he said, I'm going to go get a picture of this thing. And uh, I don't think he realized really what position he was putting himself in. So he went and went around the edge of this mud slope or whatever, and and uh, and I didn't see him. And then I heard I heard him yell just for a second, and I almost turned like got concerned, and then I heard that thing scream again. And, and I stopped digging, and I turned around and looked, and here comes Jason around the slope of one of these eroded mud hills just peeling out man i mean just spinning feet just going (laughs) and came and running his ass off and got all the way to me and he had blood all over him and i didn't know what happened to him at first and he had rocks some little clay rocks stuck in his skin like when you fall off a motorcycle on the gravel road and he was all bleeding he was bloody and bleeding and he had that shit him. it looked like he it looked like he laid down a bike on a gravel road yeah road rash yeah it looked like road rash and and he was just his eyes were like dinner plates and he was fired up man i mean we gotta go we gotta go boy he was just lit and i told him hold on dude i gotta finish here i gotta cover this and we gotta go now we gotta go now we gotta go now well he was lit and i and i calmed him down i said i asked him what the hell happened dude you know i said did it hit you or what i thought at first it knocked him down or something he said no no i never saw it he said i got over there and screamed he said, during my scream, it screamed so loud, I couldn't hear myself scream, and I could feel it. And it, he said, I don't know if, if I fell down or it knocked me down. And he said, but my legs started to try to run, and I couldn't stop them. And I was sly, and I slid all the way down this big mud slope into the bottom before my legs caught traction, and I took off. He said, I just I couldn't, con- I couldn't contain myself. I did this to myself, he says. And, uh, and firsthand experience with fight or flight. Yeah. Right. And, um, and so he, so we did bolt. So we took off and I thought, okay, well the sun was setting right then. So the sun was just going behind the ridge. It was just setting. And I thought, all right, well, we had about three and a half miles across some pretty rough desert lands. Um, a lot of that brainy stuff. And then it opened up into these big, big sand washes and some Mesa lands. And so 
it was pretty precarious at first, and then we could kind of make tracks after that. And so we got through the precarious part right about dark, and we were both really relieved and hadn't had anything happen. And we thought, okay, cool, you know, we're doing good. So we kind of were, we were quick walking, and it was dark. We had no lights, and we're quick walking. And um, we went through a fence, and then, uh, I don't know, we were probably oh, three-quarters of the way back overall at that point. So, um, you know, we're still about a mile and a quarter, something like that, from the car. Or, I mean, a three-quarters of a mile, something like that, from the car. And, and all of a sudden, it screamed again, and maybe, you know, three, 400 feet behind us. And I'm thinking, this thing just fouled us wow. out, you know, two and a quarter, two and a half miles in the dark. And we didn't know it was there. And, uh, so we broke into a run and I mean, it was dark. We didn't even care. And I remember we, we cleared two barbed wire fences and all I just barely seen the posts coming when I got to them, you know, but it wasn't even worth slowing down. We didn't, it didn't even matter. I mean, that's how, that's how, how bad, how scary we were. And I know, I remember even I had a big old, uh, big old cutlass that I used to drive around the desert, real high performance thing. It was just a desert beater though. And, uh, and open, open pipes loud as hell. And so I remember getting back that car and, and feeling like, God, this is the best thing in the world. You know, we're in the car and I fired it up and, and, but when I went to put it in reverse, this overwhelming fear grabbed me again. Like, like it just, there was nothing there that I knew of, but almost like the car wasn't safe enough. And in reverse, I'm not safe and I won't be safe until I get into drive and we're hauling ass, you know? And, um, and so that was a, that was a pretty hair raising. That was probably one of the scariest. That was pretty, because it went on so long. Now, do you and, ch- um, did you chalk that fear up to just a culmination of all the experience through up until that point? Or are you indicating that you felt, you felt, uh, um, the presence of one of these things like many people, um, I, I know you, no, people, I know what you mean. They so. call it the woo, and and you know there's yeah. there's times where there's times where I, I don't like to use that word because it it tends to negate what people's experiences are with these things, and right. uh, but nevertheless, it is some of the more stranger aspects of of. Uh, no, I've I've felt both kinds of fear. So the second one you had mentioned, I can deal with that. Um, you can have an inherent feel that'll paralyze you, and and but when you're around them, and that's a fact. And it's so, I, but I've been able to contain that. But this was different because what you have is obviously a very large creature, very upset, who was now heading the complete opposite direction that he formerly was, and file followed you for a couple of miles, and is going to scream at you again to let you know he's still pissed off and doesn't like you there. Yeah. You know, um, so well, if you like to say, well, did you feel his presence, man? When he's screaming at the top of his lungs and it's vibrating your chest, you damn sure right you feel his presence. But um, the other one, the unexplainable fear, I want to tell people this too. I hear Steve Isdahal and a lot of others mention this stuff a lot, and they just need to dig a little deeper. So, you know, um, there's reproductive pheromones um, that are attract the mate for reproductive purposes. Mm-hmm. There are also something called meromones that. Males uh, emit to intimidate other males. It acts as a repellent, yes. Yeah, it acts as a repellent. And what that does is try to stop fights and things before they ever happen. So basically one being can detect how tough the other being is. And it's the amount of testosterone he's carrying, his his attitude, and things are are what push this, this meromone release. When a human being 
you're talking an animal that can you're talking an animal that can intimidate other animals by its chemo- natural chemical release animals that would rip you to shreds are intimidated so imagine how a human being is in response to a marimone release of a large male bigfoot we don't know why we just went locked up into panic and into shock we have no idea what caused that Okay, but it's the same thing as pheromones. We have no conscious idea of the physical attraction toward another being. We don't know why. The pheromones make us react that way. See, but you don't smell pheromones in the air. You don't detect that the person is attracting you through some type of chemical release. The same way you don't realize that you're being intimidated, scared, or you just were put into shock and pissed your pants, because a marimone release. So it's it would be perfectly natural for most males to and even females to pick up on that uh, that type of a chemical release from those beings, um, and that certainly would shut us down. It would shut it. it that's probably what shuts dogs down because dogs react the same way, right? Um, and they'll go into shock, and they won't know they they don't know how to handle what they're what they're picking up. And that's the thing is they they it's not like they're smelling something they've had a bad encounter with before. Even with us, same trip, it's inherent. It's in your genes to be scared of them. Um, so when you detect that release, that chemical release, same thing as a bear or a dog or anything else, it's built into them to be scared of that. You know what I mean? So yeah. that's part of the self-preservation and just people don't factor that in. They just don't know that. Um, and I know I've been around big males that were intimidating me and what did not like me there. And I've been very close to them for long periods of time. And I have felt that terror and that I've been able, I've, I've been able to deal with it and to stay in that position. Um, you know, and, and, and my whole logic is I talk to myself, I say, you know, one foot, one second or one inch is all you need and you're safe. So if you're one second ahead of them, you're good to go. Yeah. If you're if you if you're one foot out of grab reach, you're good to go. So it's it's that little thin line. It's the same thing in racing, man. It doesn't you know a quarter inch off the wall is just as good as six feet. It doesn't matter as long as you don't hit the wall. Yeah. Right. So it's it's that same thing. So I throw that logic to myself and that I'm okay at the moment, and that I reassess everything about every half a second to either reassure myself or make a plan. Um. And, but I've, I've, when I was in with the big male, um, in the waking the giant videos that we've got up when I was in with him. Yeah. I mean, I tell people I, I didn't, when it first went, started going down and I've got one walking on my left and I've got him breaking stuff 60 feet in front of me. Um, I didn't know if I was peeing or not. Like I thought I was pissing. I didn't know. I actually did think I started to, and I didn't pee my pants, but I thought I was, um, my legs were shaking uncontrollably, not like quivering little quivers no no they're wobbling back and forth my mm-hmm. knees like two yeah. inches i mean it to where the, what they were trying to do was run and my body was stopping them and they were trying to run trying to stop them about every quarter of a second right so it's like they're just shaking but they're really just trying to run um out from under you it was the same response that jason nicewanger had but right, i was yeah. uh, but i just made myself stand there you know and with a quivery voice made myself deal with it and cause I, I know that's what it's going to take if you, you know, to get the deal. And, and I say it's, there's nothing to be ashamed of being scared of these things. When people say, well, why is there no clear image? And I'm going to tell you right now, 80% of the time <laughs> it's because of fear, buddy. Yeah. Nobody wants to get close enough to one of these things to get a clear image or take the time it takes. It's, 
it's hard. I, I would never bitch at anybody, even if they piss their pants right next to me. I wouldn't tease them. Well, in, you know? in one of my earliest episodes, um, I was I was fortunate enough to um, interview a gentleman who had a had one walk out in front of him uh, here in southwest Michigan. And uh, he literally had his phone in his hand because he, his father, his brother-in-law, and a family friend, all four of them hunted together, and they hunted um, around a swamp. Each one of them had their own spot. And uh, the the experience started off with uh, the father calling the gentleman that I interviewed, the father calling him saying, hey, be careful, there's some idiot walking through the swamp wearing a, a big ghillie suit or something. And this was at like 5.30 in the morning on opening day of deer season. And so then the the guy the guy says to his dad, he's like, "You can't be walking through the middle of the swamp. We've been in the swamp, and you know damn well that if you're in the swamp, it can be chest deep. You know, he can't be walking. He's got to be walking on the side of it or in the thicket or something. He's like, he's walking through the middle of the swamp, and right. then, then his phone starts beeping in, and he hears a he hears a scream." And his phone starts beeping in, and it's his uh, brother-in-law who's now calling him. So he tells his dad, I'm going to hang up, and I'm going to answer. Let's call him Joe. I don't remember what his name was. Um, so he answers that, and he's like, Jesus Christ, something just came up from behind me in the swamp. His his tree stand was on the opposite side of the tree, not facing the swamp. And this thing came up behind and yelled at him. And uh, eventually walked past that tree, came down a a slight lane around the outside edge of the uh, the swamp and walked out 50 yards in front of the gentleman that I interviewed and lifted his arm and broke a tree branch off with his forearm instead of ducking to walk underneath it. And he literally had his phone in his hand. Right, and, and never he, got a picture. Face <laughs> and he never even thought about taking a picture of it. That's right. That's right. I've had people pull in my arm. Let's get out of here while I'm trying to take a picture. You know, yeah. I mean, and it's where you don't even, and I'll say this. And I was just, and it's cool because my team guy, uh, we call him black Willie, whatever. That may not be politically correct, whatever. It's true though. <laughs> and, um, but anyway, he was with me, he was with the Sona deal and he's here right now. He's actually just rolled up in his motorhome the other day. He's visiting and I, and I finally got to ask him after five years, I never even got to ask him what he really thought about what we saw in, in the Sandia Mountains. And that's one that where I call it the lodge. And it, it's a zone we got into that was so massive and so incredible and so incomprehensible. Um, and this, and we had, I, what do we have? Six guys in there. Um, three of them were ex vets and including Willie and, uh, and in that whole thing, there was about a, a three quarters of a mile we went through that was mind blowing. I mean, mind blowing, mind blowing. And I, I never photographed anything in that three quarter of a mile, nothing. All I cared about internally. And I asked Willie what was going through his head too. And I said, all I cared about internally was how long is it going to take to get out of here? And I mean, that's it because yeah. We got into a region, we took a wrong trail, and we were in this area, up to 30 people have gone missing in a single year with no investigation. They don't investigate them. 
Um, and yeah. And on this loop of this trail, people do not go down there period. And it's deep and dark and all this, it's gnarly. And, um, can you say, can you say where this is again? Yeah. It's called the lower OSHA loop in the Sandia mountains. Okay. So a lot of people. Yeah, that's a lot of people. And people don't know this. So this is going to be real. This is going to stir some waves when I bring this crap up too. But we got off in there and took we took the lower loop up by accident, trying to make it back out of the woods on mountain bikes. And um, and it was a mistake. When we got to the bottom and we started to head kind of laterally across the face of the mountain, we came to a spot pretty quick where we you could see where the edge of it was. It was a very defined edge of a region. And in this region the large pines were all intact and they were thick, you know, tree every 10 feet or whatever. They were thick for big trees. And these are, you know, two, three, three and a half or even thicker trunks. These are old big trees. And we're going through the forest there. And there came to a place in a region, like I said, where there wasn't a single branch or bough below 40 to 60 feet anywhere. As we progressed, they were all gone. And gone as far, well, maybe 200 yards at least, either side of our progression, there was not a single branch or bough, nothing, zero. There was not a single green plant on the ground, none. Hmm. What was on the ground were whole trees, and they were stacked two and three and four and even five high. And these are trees they were everywhere. I'm telling you, for 200 yards on either side of it, it was like this. You could not walk more than 10 feet without having to climb or without having to crawl or squeeze through. So, um, so they were like set up as blockades, barricades? The, it was just random directions flopped everywhere. The whole place was like a, it was like a no-go kill zone type of thing. Nothing could make it through there. No deer, no nothing. A deer, no way. I mean, no way. So... It, it, it'd be broke up and hurt by the time it even got halfway in this stuff. And, and so, and what they were, were trees up to a hundred foot tall, three feet thick. Some of the root balls were 12 foot across and these are all laid in there stacked everywhere. As we progressed, the forest service had gone through apparently, I mean, I don't know how long and cut this trail through this stuff and they would restack trees. And one we saw that was seven between, they had stacked them between trees that crossed the trail. So they stacked a tree directly on top of another, you know, between the trees. So like kind of like a wall, Mm -hmm. but they were doing one at a time. And as the forcers would cut, they'd stack another one. And we saw where they did that seven high. And we ran across in in a hundred feet. We we counted 13 fresh trees across the cut trail. And we don't know when the last time the cutting crew was down in there. Um, But Anyway, so as we progress, though, you're, you can imagine what this looks like. I mean, and it was so scary because you couldn't have run in any direction, not even on the trail, because the trail was just wigwagging through all this stuff where they had cut it out. Which just chopped. They're just chopping a section through the trees, you can kind of imagine. And so there was nowhere to go. And you couldn't even see very far. All you could see was piled trees. There could have been anything in them piled trees hiding, and you'd never see it. And so we progressed through this for about a quarter of a mile, and a little farther, maybe half mile. And then um, there was some large, large manipulations, let's say. You know, the big bows and things mm-hmm. we see, but really big. Not like everything we saw was just massive, massive scale. It was so intimidating. Like I said, we didn't even stop. I didn't stop. And so, but to the left of the trail, off about 30 feet off trail, there was, you know, you, you've seen pictures where a tree will be woven into other trees, yes. lateral. Yes. You know, uh, parallel to the ground. 
um, and, and be elevated, you know, six or seven feet. You'll have like a 20 foot, four inch thick tree woven. Right. No. Well, about 25 or 30 foot off the ground was a tree, maybe 60 or 80 feet long. That was probably 20 inches thick at the base. And it was woven through six trees that were two and three feet in diameter. About, and I mean, three stories off the ground. And it was woven in so tight that it was bending. It bent in an S curve through those trees. This is a tree that the S curve bends were 12 inches to 20 inch thick tree. You ever seen a tree that thick bend? <laughs> no. You can't bend a tree like that. But the force of those huge trees that was weaved in was bending it. They had somehow, I don't know how they did it. I can, that was what we looked at. What it does is it messes with your brain so bad. You can't comprehend how that was done, you know, and I guarantee it's still there unless somebody cut the trees down. Cause it's never coming out of there until yeah. those trees fall down. And just past that down slope from us, um, we were about to round kind of round a, a finger going down the mountain and just down slope on that bottom of that finger on that lower edge of that finger was we looked and then we realized where all the boughs and all the branches and all everything else like that was. See, there was no, not even a single pole, you know, four inch, 20 foot looking, you know, pole laying around. There was nothing like that in there. It was all cleaned up. And so, and, but down that slope, we saw it and we saw it all. And with it was a pile, it was a pile of trees and it was all tied together, woven together, like not, not as tight as a beaver dam, but pretty damn tight. And the trees were like 30 and anywhere, maybe 20 to 40 foot trees, right? Maybe eight inches thick to 18 inches thick, whatever. And they were all stacked in this big stack. And, I, and what I could see of it was about 70 feet long is what I could see. And then it, it went ahead and went off the edge of the slope down where we couldn't see. Jesus. And as I, look, as I looked at it, when I first saw it, I, I didn't think it was that big. And then I realized, holy shit. That's all the boughs because what they had done is they laid all the branches. They put the trees down. They laid all the, 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 the poles, long poles down. Then they put all the branches and boughs and small stuff, and then they threw dirt on it. <clears throat> so under the dirt was sticking out boughs and branches and shit. I mean, at first, you didn't see all that. I just saw some trees, you know, tangled. And yeah. then when I realized the whole slope was built. And you couldn't see how far down it kept going. <clears throat> and I could see holes where the dirt was falling through the gaps into it, you know. So you could see how big the hollow or how, how large of an area must have been hollow under it. And, and we called that the lodge because it's the only thing I could even attribute it to. And, um, and it, it, it got bad. My guys, you know, most of those guys panicked. Willie, I'm going to say this about him, man. He's back. Willie's one of the baddest fuckers there is, dude. He's sorry to cuss. He's, That's um, right. And he really is. I mean, because he, I'll tell you why, he held his ground. I had pulled a tendon, and I really thought we weren't going to get out of there. I really thought these things are going to kill us in here tonight. And the sun was going down. It was getting that dark, that limelight that's in the forest, you know? Yeah. Um, the, the forest gets darker before, you know, everything oh, else sure, does yeah. kind of. And you got this long time of barely being able to see or whatever. And it was getting like that. And I told the rest of the team, I said, man, I, I, my tendons ripped the hell apart. I got to get me a crutch. And I'm starving. I'm going to munch something, and I'll meet you guys. Get the hell out of here. And they reluctantly went. And that may not have been a good thing to do, but I could not actually continue at that point. And I damn sure wasn't going to have them in there. And so I made them leave. And um, and I did. I got a granola bar out. I started munching it. Started looking for a crutch to use while I pushed my bike. And, man, I heard steps coming up. And I had gone up uphill from the lodge area there now. 
by now. And I heard steps coming up from that area where the lodge was, big ones. And it was obviously not trying to be quiet. And because, you know, some, you know what a three-inch, you know, a bow laying on the forest floor, you step on them, they get a, you know, a pop. Pretty good pop. Um, yeah. Yeah, and you could you could hear him coming up, and then he popped a couple things like that, and I'm thinking, gosh, damn, this is not good being here. And um, so I went ahead and started getting out of there, and wouldn't you know it, this, the little treelet, dead treelet I tried to pull out to use as a stump, when I pushed it over, it, it sprang up, and all the dirt flew up and landed straight in my eyes. Oh, Jesus. Um, I mean, I swear <laughs> to God, dude, it was like, and I'm thinking, I'm, and I almost laughed myself. I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, I am such the wounded sheep right now. I got a pull tendon. I'm toting a bike and a pack. I'm so damn slow. My other guys are gone, and now I just sprayed my eyes with dirt, and I can't <laughs> see anything. So, but as it went, I went ahead and moved out and moved forward, and I got up around a turn, and, and, uh, and by golly, there was, there was Willie. Uh, Everyone else was gone. Willie went around the corner. I told him, I thought I told you to get the hell out of here. He says, I wasn't going nowhere, dude. And I thought, you know, so, but I'll tell you what, I was damn happy that he didn't do what I said. And, um, but before we got out, I give to the other guys too, that, um, they came back in on trail. So it was, um, six and a half miles, I think out, it was 10 kilometers out. And so, uh, they met us about the last quarter of the way. Actually, they had come back in and, uh, cause we hadn't made it out you know, in a while. So that's an amazing but, story. What, what did you, what are you looking back on it now? And, um, so what's your, what's your perspective on that area? What, what was that you were walking into? Was well, that, now that we've identified where that, where that lodge was, there's, it's actually centrally located between three springs and it's within a hundred yards or even closer to one of the three springs. And it's, it's positioned in a real deep, dark, steep, uh, uh, place on the mountain. Um, it looks it, to me, well, from what we've gleaned in the research and stuff, this is what the big males seem to do. So they don't hang out with the family units, um, very much. They blow out and go hang out by themselves, uh, in the high mountains somewhere where they, you know, feel secure, whatever they're doing. Yeah. Um, and they do their big male thing, you know, I mean, what we saw, even are they, though, are even they the gathering, are they gathering as a group of males together? Yeah, I think so, because what we were looking at, it could not have even, you know, some of that stuff could not have even been done by one big male. It would have had to have been a couple or a few to have moved some of We're looking at trees that are twenty to 40,000 pounds, you know, so, and they're carrying them in there. And one tree, they set the root ball in the trail, right? And it was, it was, you had, it was easily, easily 12 to 15 foot tall with all the rocks, dirt, roots, everything on it. And, and it was probably 15 foot in diameter if you were to look at the diameter of the root ball. And there was a good six feet deep of dirt and roots on the bottom of it. So you're looking, you know, something that's standing in front of us 12 foot tall, but it's 15 diameter root ball, six foot thick, attached to a 100 foot tree. And they put the root ball right in the trail. You couldn't go, you could not progress. And uh, we had to go up and, and go around it, climb and, and do everything to get around it. You know, so, so do you I mean, think this was this was all designed as a um, a deterrent to keep we anyone, talk, to get anyone from getting close to that what you call the lodge, or do you feel we, that we, this was more of a, a structured uh, kill zone for you know uh, wayward animals coming through and not being able to uh, escape the area? Uh, you know, kind of like what they used to do with the uh, um, 
the rocks, the, the big stone circles where they'd, you know, get a mammoth in there and they wouldn't, you know, you'd have a bunch of. Right. Right. And so we, we would, and we discussed this the other day too, reflecting back on it because the lodge was not in the center of that damaged zone. And, and, and for a long time, I just took it for granted. But then when I go to realize back, the lodge was not in the middle of that. It was at one end of it. And um, the human trail coming down in there did not have to go through much of that before it encountered the lodge on the one, on the one side, on the other side, it did, you had to go through quite a bit of it, like I said, but maybe half mile, but, but on the, on the, uh, on the South side, it didn't, you could have walked right down into that and not experienced that. There was, I will say they did mark with big trees quite a ways from the lodge. So the, the zone that they marked altogether the lodge is kind of in the center of it, but not in the damaged stuff, not in all those trees laying down. It's not in the middle of that. It's one on one edge of it. And the way they designated the perimeter of the zone is they, they laid giant trees or respectably sized trees, 24 inch to 36 inch uh, trunked trees. And they laid them down like a fence tree to tree to tree to tree to tree to tree to tree. And then where you'd have a break in that, then they would stack you know, five or six bleached, lodge poles, you know, um, maybe 20, 30 foot long. Um, and they would stand those like a, like the teepee structures we see. Yeah. And they would, they'd stand that and that would be like, it's like a, like a gate. There'd be a, a break in the trees they laid down and that would be like a gate. So you could actually walk right through without any obstruction. Um, even off trail, we found a couple of those. So it seemed like they had marked a perimeter, like just don't come down here, leave us alone. Uh, but like I said, the lodge was not in the middle of the major manipulation zone. I don't know. It was in a place that, yeah, if you have a trail, you got deer anywhere down there. Um, if you did spook them, yeah, they'd, they'd break their legs getting out of there. They wouldn't, you know, a deer can only do so much. People go, oh, bullshit, I've seen deer. No, no, you have never seen a place <laughs> like this then. You know, imagine you dropped 5,000 telephone poles from half a mile in the sky and they landed like pixie sticks and then go try to have a deer jump through those things. It's not going to happen, you know? You know, I mean, it, it's really, it's hard to quantify something, you know, like to envision that, you know, it almost, it almost sounds like you're describing an area that would have been hit with a, um, you know, severe straight line winds or a tornado or something. That yeah, would have done it, that yeah tornado. Matter of fact, the only thing that I've ever seen pile material like that was a flood. Not even a tornado would do anything like that. But I've seen floods do that, you know, where they're carrying full yeah. trees, yeah. a mass of full trees, that tangle, how tangled that looks. That's what that looked like. How do you quantify? So, how do you quantify? And, and the, the thing is that none of those trees fell. See, all the trees that, that are supposed to be there were all there. This is thick forest I'm talking about. There was more trees on the ground than there was standing, but there was no holes for any of those trees to have come out of. So it was obvious they were brought in. They were all brought in. How do you you quantify that kind of strength? You can't. That it would take for that. Because, I mean, if you you take a look at a a, a human bodybuilder, okay, and, and, you know, he can bench press uh, 350 to 400 pounds. That's a lot of weight. And he can deadlift, you know, what, 1,200 pounds. That's a shit ton of weight. Um, But then, you know, you go to a gorilla, and a silverback gorilla is by weight 
considerably more than we do. But five times. It, but in height, not so much more than we are. Oh, right, right, but right. Yeah. But their strength. Yeah, five times. Is yeah. five times what we are. Yeah. So, you know, it, when you when you do the math and you start going up to six foot, seven foot, eight foot, nine foot, ten foot, eleven foot, or twelve foot, right? And and if 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 the if the strength differential between a normal human being and a gorilla is five times, not not to say that these are are apes, but well, let's do this. So. Let's take a person, let's take an eight-year-old kid, right? 80 pounds, right? And then you're talking that a 300-pound human can lift 1,200, right? Mm-hmm. And that 80-pound human can't lift his own, his own weight. Right. Okay, so you're looking at the, the, the strength, size-to-strength ratio goes up tremendously. Now, let's look at a person that's... Uh, six one okay and then let's look at a person that's six five and they have the same frame yeah the six five person can can almost double the weight of a six one person on the same frame yeah so what we begin to see is is the like the what people don't realize is they go oh he's a you know a foot taller or whatever he's going to weigh 200 pounds more it's not the way it works you're talking the body mass in just six inches taller doubles because the entire mass is larger. Everything is larger. And it, the way volume works doesn't work in, in length. It works in everything, right? right? Yeah. So it's a lot more than what people would consider. So if you were to actually scale, so when I, when, when, when during Waking the Giant, when I surprised that when he was either asleep or laying on his side close to being asleep because he didn't hear me come until I was 57 feet from him. And when he rolled over and exploded up, I heard the mass and felt the mass. And I've spooked hundreds of big cattle and horses. And I mean, spooked till they panicked like crazy right in front of me. I mean, lots of times at night during the day. I know what that mass sounds like. <clears throat> and the mass of the Bigfoot that was l- way worse than any of them. I mean, I, I like you take a two thousand or eighteen hundred pound bull, and it's it it absolutely it was bigger. I mean, it, matter of fact, that's what was so uncomprehendable was the mass and its speed. The acceleration of that much mass was uncomprehendable. Um, do you think? I mean, if, if, do you think their density is the same as ours? Well, I mean, to a it, no. Yes, and I say that only in so much as looking at the human being per human being. You can't even look at two people. If you were to do displacement versus weight or whatever, we vary tremendously. Um, some people are much more dense than other people are. Um, and that's bone density, muscle density. You know, it depends on what type of physical structures you have. You right. know what I mean? So, yeah. Um, But, yeah, anytime you're going to have that, a bone that works that much is going to certainly have be very, very structurally dense. Um, and the same as humans, you know, if you don't do anything, you don't fight gravity, you lose bone mass like astronauts. Right. Um, they're going to have more bone mass because they're living the lifestyle that they do. So in a sense, yeah, they're going to be denser than us. But I mean, I would, if we look at the proper scale from our research and we go, you know, somebody says, oh, an eight footer is going to weigh 800 pounds and then a 10 footer is going to weigh a thousand. No, 
If an eight footer weighs 800 pounds, a 10 footer is probably going to weigh close to 1800 pounds. Um, a, a 12 footer is probably going to come in around 3000 to 3,600 pounds. If we begin to look at lift strength and strength overall, you're actually, by the time you get to a 12 foot individual, you're looking at a 40,000 pound lift strength. So Jesus when, Christ. because if you're looking, <clears throat> well, you're looking at a 400 pound human can lift what? 1200 pounds. Yeah. And a right? deadlift. Yeah. In a deadlift. And you're talking a gorilla is five times stronger. So that would mean he could lift 6,000 pounds. A 400-pound gorilla at that scale could lift a Could lift 6,000 pounds. Okay. So if we take the same scale and say a 3,600-pound Bigfoot then can lift how much? It's conservatively 40,000 pounds. You see what I'm saying? So when you want to see, like, <clears throat> jerking a tree out of the ground. So I got to watch one. We did. We got to watch one. Uh, myself, Stephanie Waldo, my our archaeologist and, and a landowner. We got to watch one go down a mountain, descend, oh, 250 feet probably with a couple of drop-offs that were about 30 foot, and he did it in five seconds. And then, and just leaping down the mountain. He didn't care if there was a 30-foot cliff or not. He just leaped off of it. Didn't yeah. give a crap. Um, and then it went down and proceeded to rip out uh, about a, a, a pinyon tree, about 20, 25 foot tall, 20 foot in diameter uh, pinyon pine that was grown in rock, uh, rock, rock scree, you know, big rock slope, not soil, and and not just soil. And he, we we're on thermal, <clears throat> and um, we're using the A ten military stuff before it was declassified. We're watching him about a quarter to a half mile away. And he ripped the tree out by shaking, and he pulled it back and forth about three times and then pulled it, and then on that last swing, pulled it down to himself, and it gave in. Okay, so when we look at something like that, um, and we think, well, I've seen car accidents in a car doing 100 miles an hour hit a tree like that and wrap the car around the tree. Yeah. Tree's still alive. Doesn't even take the tree out. And you think, what was the amount of force that hit the tree? Of course, you're only talking that it hit it near the base. And then you do the math. I've done this. So then you do the math on the leverage at, let's say, six to eight feet off the ground and how much, what that, what that difference would be in leverage of force upon the tree. And we've actually estimated that your jerk strength, your ability to jerk sideways, would have to be about 40,000 pounds to have swayed and ripped the tree out of the ground like that. So, you know, people just, they just don't get it. You know, when, when we're talking about, and, and, and then, like we say, we get the pros back in here again and they, Oh, well, eight foot, eight foot, eight foot, eight foot, man, that's a kid. Yeah. You know, eight, eight that's foot, a kid. Eight foot seems to be about as, as much as they want to go. Yeah, no shit. Yeah, no, they have, they're perpetuating, trust me, they're actually perpetuating a body form, a body size, and everything kind of covertly that fits a single suspect. And that's Gigantopithecus. Okay, so that's what they're doing. All, all that eight foot standing height um, and the weight estimation and all that's around, revolves around that animal. Um, that's why they say, oh, well, the feet couldn't have been any long, longer than 18 inches. Because, you know, that's going to be the max foot size you could squeeze onto an eight foot or nine foot being. And what so you're doing, what you're describing that you've seen 
is infinitely more terrifying than something that could walk into my house and the, his head would touch my ceiling. Yeah, and what people don't get is the way I try to picture it to people, I say, take a six-foot pole, stand it on top of your head, and look where the top of that pole is, and then fit a linebacker into that scale, and your brain just wants to shut off. I mean, the picture we've got of the female carrying the kid, um, that I've, it's public, it's on, um, you know, she's, she, we, we could scale her, you know, using survey techniques. And that's what we did. And she's slightly crouched and just over 10 foot. And I could fit two people in her leg. No problem. Like two, me and one of my guys could, if it was a costume, could slide just into her leg. And where are these, where are these images available? Oh, they're, they're up there. Um, I've got them all over the place. They're, um, they're actually on the cover image of, of uh, the video where we're doing a presentation to at a, at a, uh, at a community college in response to uh, a state senator and, and news crews uh, trying to get our research blocked. Uh, news, special investigative teams and a state senator and a bunch of stuff tried. And then I had to go do a, a presentation in front of a scientific peer group to counter what they were doing publicly to us. And that is on our YouTube channel. And it's on. It's the cover shot that's on there. Okay. Um, other than that, you can see it in our Facebook group. Um, uh, KX Cryptid Hominid uh, Research or whatever on um, in on Facebook, and we also have Crider Exploration. I can give you those at the end, and people can go to it and take a look. And I'll, and I'll tell you what. I'll even if they want to do as a response. Once you post this, you let me know, and I'll throw a fresh pickup on there of it, and they can take oh, a look. Oh, great! Yeah. You know, and so we'll we'll get it get it to them somehow Definitely. but but yeah that's just to show how big she was uh, estimated 34 inches across the hips so and that was the Jesus. minimum measurement um uh, the she's probably around 40 uh, from hip to hip uh so that's pretty big and and the males so i've got to be pretty damn close to big males a couple times so the one in the waking the vi- waking the giant video um you know like i said i I got to be within, I got to see him at 60 feet, 57 feet. I got to see him. And then, um, and then I got to see him a little later in that deal. And then, um, I got to see one during a video that's on kicks on the YouTube channel. It's called, uh, MJ 13. That was during part of the, uh, university of New Mexico study. And during that event, I got to see the big male at about maybe 10 feet. Oh, um, Christ. and so, and he was not facing me. He actually was sitting on his ass down slope for me, and I was crawling on my belly and crawled up behind him. And he just kind of slouched forward when he got up. He didn't stand all the way erect. He kind of rolled forward when he got up, and he lumbered and swayed real heavy and, and just walked away from me. But he, um, I got to see the head and shoulders, you know, uh, blocking all the skyline and everything through the <laughs> trees. And, um, and he was, uh, you know, uh, he was like six feet across the shoulders. So if you can, you know... If you can, it's hard to imagine, but if you can imagine 60, and then the top of his head was the size of a basketball. You know, the round part of the head would have been as as, easy, as big as a basketball. Um, and people just don't get that. You know, his eye sockets are the size of my fist. <laughs> you know, so. So you, you, you keep going back. You keep going back. You keep looking at these things and, and trying to get close to them. And, um, I mean, the, there's, there's got to be a little bit of a screw loose 
somewhere. We'll uh, actually try not to get close to them. So everybody tries to get to them, and getting to them, that's the bad. You, I don't even like when that happens. So I track them a lot. And and when you get on a real fresh sign, you know, oh, man, you know, because I'm tracking. If I keep going on the tracks, you're going to eventually come to what leaves the tracks unless it's outpacing you. Right. And um, and so tracking, I've run into them a bunch. I mean, I've tracked them to the subject quite a bit. And that's I don't want to do. What I'm trying to do is learn their behavior, not how they deal with me. That's not what I'm trying to understand. Um, I'm trying to understand who they are, what they do, what they are, and all this. So if I'm in the picture, I color the results. See, all I'm going to see is the behavior of the creature in response to me. I'm not going to see how they live and what they do and how they act. So I That's try to go in I try to go in and, and gain all my stuff through tracing physical evidence, you know, because um, I can see what they do. I can see where they go, where they pick up a stick, and where they dig with it, and where they throw it, and you know, and, and you get, that's where you get this idea of how, you know, how their temperament is during the day, how excited they are. Are they just mellow hanging out? Are they having to fight for food or is this a big, you know, and so I can see all that. And, but if I run into the group, then I, I lose all that. And so I have run into the group several times and, and, um, and they've tolerated me pretty well. And then, like I said, I surprised that big male. I, if I if think if I'd have known he was there, I would have walked up there. Hell no. Um, uh, but once I knew he was there, I went ahead and went in with him, you know, and I stayed 40 feet from him as close as 12 feet to the smaller one. You know, I stayed in there for like an hour and 40 minutes, hour and 45 minutes with him. And that was about all my heart could take. And then he finally grunted. That was really evident that it was okay. We're done now. And I went ahead and left. And, um, and he was completely aware that you were there. Oh my God. Yeah. He, from the second that he was, he's surprised awake yeah and he rolled over and looked at me yeah he knew and then yeah yeah totally yeah and i was going back and forth video and talking the whole time i'm right there next to him and he's breaking big shit next to me and you know as i'm looking at a 23 inch footprint he's breaking shit next to me you know the print was less than you know two or three minutes old you know so now you've had experience um witnessing interactions between multiple Yeah. So especially, uh, especially through audio and then some through visual, but only so much as the response, like the parents have when their kids are there and what they do with the kid, stuff like that. Like George, man, he was seven foot tall and mom still snatched him up like he was a toddler and took <laughs> off with him. And no, George, no. George runs around and hunts and busts into farms and all kinds of crap. He's not, you know, but she didn't care. She still just grabbed his ass up and took off. And I guess what I'm curious about is what is, what is the temperament seem to be of them in their, um, in their group, in their, in their family, in their tribe, whatever, whatever we call this, uh, uh, the family, uh, the family unit, what is their right. temperament? Do they, do they, um, do they exhibit some of the same, same type of things that you would expect looking at a human mom and a child and oh, yeah. you know, yeah. are the, are the fathers, are they, uh, the big males, are they, um, gentle with the, the females and the, and the children or, you know, I, from everything you hear and, you know, preconceived ideas of what these creatures do, you would expect that the, um, or I would anyway, that the, the, the big males would always be a little bit more aggressive and, um, more standoffish towards you yeah. know, not having any That's kind a, of emotional tie to um, the family unit. 
Yeah, not as yeah, and and I wouldn't say not any emotional tie, but they're definitely big guys. They're big, tough guys, you know. Um, and and I know that I know they have to be soft and loving to some extent um, because of the way they've acted and reacted. <clears throat> but at the same time, you're very correct about not wanting to tolerate. Like the big males don't tolerate people. They don't like to tolerate interaction. Listen, what from what we've seen. Um, and when the fam- when they're with the family unit, the family unit acts differently than when they're not there. Um, like George was has always been real cool and playful and no big deal, and um, and you know they like to ghost you and sneak around you and prove how good they are. So and the, George does that kind of crap. But when he, he was in there with his dad, and he didn't act that way. So as I was crawling to one pinch point, and I told people a lot about this, and he. He kept, George was the one in there doing it. He kept crawling to meet me at the pinch point, and nobody does that. So he's never acted that way before ever. That's like he's going to grab my ass up. And so it's kind of like why, you know, George was acting that way in front of Dad, you know, because Dad obviously does not like people. In four years of seeing, well, you know, probably well over 2,000 or 2,500 prints of these family, um, we never saw a single footprint of the big male. He's that good. Um, But we – we would record him. And then when we finally did fit, find his prints, the very next day is when I ran into him. So he was just back in with the family while he was there, but he doesn't stay there very much. And we recorded what we believe were two birth events. Um, because you know, we vicariously, we got to see the infant's feet and we got to see a lot of stuff through the evidence and even, um, and even the, uh, I can't remember what you call it. The, the scat from the infant when it's lactate, when it's, uh, uh, off the lactose from the mom when right, she's breastfeeding yeah. and it colors it kind of blue or green. And so we've been able to find where they've had the baby and they've fed them and they've pooped the, 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 that, that color and all this stuff. So, and at that same time, the male was basically killing every single dog in the whole Valley and screaming and creating all kinds of havoc during that. And he was with the family quite frequently. And then once that birth mellowed out after a few months, he, he was there very rarely again. And so he was around during the birth of that, you know, and he was extremely protective. Um, and uh, even going so far as to like literally snuff out dogs and stuff like that, you know, anything that might alert their presence or, or threaten them, he was getting rid of. And, um, and we would record him coming in with the big parabolics. So I used to run a pair, a 36 inch parabolic dish, 22 feet off the ground on our mobile lab. And we would, we can move it and we knew where it was pointing. So I would track him coming off the mountain and he'd be howling and he'd do these big long howls. And, and there's actually a recording on the YouTube channel called the Ortiz mountain sounds. And then there's a spectrum analysis of all that. And that's, that's one of these events where for like 10 minutes he's, he's coming in, he's yelling. And then the family unit or the big female or one of them down there would respond. But each response was like a single response not to give away position. And it would be like a wood knock. Then it would be like a grunt. Then it'd be something else, right? So they wouldn't, they're not revealing their position. But what he's doing is moving. And each time he hears that, then he gets a triangulation on where they're at. Yeah. And then you'd, you'd, so we could, we could track his speed because we knew where he was, where he was, had his distance from us. And then we would see how many degrees he'd travel. And then we could calculate his speed. And so he could average 20 miles an hour, uh, no problem. And he's probably only at a quick walk or whatever, yeah. but he'd do like 20 mile an hour in between howls. And so he's covering ground, man. And, um, 
And then he would, everything would go quiet. And I'm, we're assuming this is when he's finally figured out about where they are. Before he gets into the river bottom, he'd figure out where they were. Then he'd go quiet. Everything would go quiet. And then right when he'd get to the group, you'd hear them all go ballistic. Um, and, you know, a big, a big celebrat- celebratory chatter session. It only lasts for five or six, seven seconds or whatever. But they'd all hoop and, and, and whistle and do all kinds of crazy noise when Dad would get there. And, um, and so we would hear the, the emotion related and the exuberance related in those vocals when he would arrive. Right. So, so it was a big deal when he would come in. And then we've also, though, we've heard, this is really cool. We have quite a bit of this recorded. Um, they'll sing together. So the, the big male would howl, but he wouldn't howl like that locating howl. He'd howl as he's coming in, but it would be kind of this sweet howl. And then the family would all join in while he's howling, harmonize with the tone, and they all have their own little voice. So on the spectrum analyzer, you can see each subject has a different voice. Is that available on one of the, on the YouTube channel? You know, I don't, I think, I don't know if I've got any singing on there or not. I, I did put up, some recent, more recent vocalization videos. There's one through four. Um, one of those, I, I, I'm sorry, I don't know more about it. One of those should have something like that in it. Um, if not, again, you know, I can, um, I can do something here in the near future, and we'll steer the listeners. I'll let you know, and when you produce yeah. this, we'll steer the listeners uh, to some of that. When I have played those i played them in michigan at the uh, bigfoot conference up there i, played I, them during I was the actually i was actually a vendor there and uh, i tried multiple times to get to get to talk to you and every time that i had a free moment to get away from my table you you had a a, a posse of people surrounding you so i never did get a chance to uh, introduce myself then oh no joke which table did you have uh it was the uncomfortable podcast i was right across the well i was probably you from where the uh from the where the rooms were where you guys were doing your uh, presentations i yeah. was out in the um in the main area with the rest of the vendors probably on the furthest side away from uh from where my table was or yeah yes. you would have been because my table was all the way over there by those rooms so yeah, yeah. okay yeah. I, I was i was on the complete opposite side um, but I made my way over a couple of times and, uh, my son was watching the table for me and, uh, you had a, you had a ton of people around you. So I never was able to, uh, the next morning, in fact, uh, he and I had went down and had breakfast and, uh, it was while you guys were getting ready to take off for, uh, the upper peninsula right. and, uh, nobody had made me aware of that. And I had, uh, um, I had been talking with Blake, uh, from that group. And he, the last minute, he's like, "Hey, you want to go up there?" <laughs> it's like a little bit of warning would have been would have been oh, a bit boy, easier. What did you miss? A good one. That was we had some good results on that one. I'll tell you what. I've seen some. Uh, I've seen seen some video excerpts from up there, and uh, it appeared that it was. Uh, um, I, I hear rumor that another one of those may be happening uh, this summer, this coming summer. Yeah. So yeah, we've been invited. Um, back up to speak um, again at a different conference up there. So, so far all the invitations I've had to present anything have been in Michigan and I've had like three of them now. Well, <laughs> so I, think I, that's, uh, I thought that was interesting really because, because here we are in New Mexico, you know, there's yeah. some, and, and, and I'm going and presenting all the way in Michigan. So. Well, I am, uh, I am pleased to announce that uh, I haven't really 
publicly come out and, and said the whole deal. But I'm also going to be doing a, uh, a conference in Southwest Michigan, uh, this coming September. So nice. it is, uh, we're getting speakers lined up and, and getting the event, uh, rolling. So pretty excited about Did, that. So you got, you didn't get a chance to, uh, catch my presentation. I did not No, In fact, I didn't get to see anybody's presentation. I was yeah. so floored by, um, you know, my, my podcast only started, um, this past February and I mm-hmm. was, I was floored by the number of people that came, um, to that conference because they knew I was going to be vending at it. And they literally came to the table and told me we drove three and a half hours to come talk to right. you. And, right. and that, that was just incredibly humbling. Well, you know, they waited until they put me last. Um, and they, they didn't even start me till, uh, eight o'clock. And it's because, um, when, when we originally made a deal with them. So I've never presented anywhere less than three hours. And, and so to put out comprehensive information, it just takes that long for the, what, what we present is a lot different than I guess everyone else. That's what I've been told. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so it just takes time. And so they had initially told me that they were going to give me, um, a couple of hours to get, to get it out. And then they had to down that to like 45 minutes or something. And I thought, my God, I don't know what I'm going to be able to do in 45 minutes. Cause I already had a full PowerPoint presentation all done that would range about an hour and a half. Yeah. And then we'd have some question time. And actually we ran, I think two hours and 30 minutes. So we didn't get out of there till 1030 out of my deal. So most people left the conference before I even got to, you know, started to speak. Yeah. All yeah. in all, it was, uh, it was, you know, one of my first events as far as being a vendor and trying to support this show. Um, it was, it was a great day. Uh, we had a, had a lot of great conversations, met a lot of great people and, uh, you, that's where you, um, I had, I'd known of you prior to that, but that's kind of where I put you on my radar where I was like, I wanted to, I wanted to get a chance to talk to you. Um, and I want to, I want to circle back real quick while I'm still thinking about it back to, um, you said you said something about um, potentially having uh, recorded evidence of some birthing a couple of times. Yeah, and what it was is so not not the event of the giving birth. Um, well, who knows what was going on there during some of our vocal sessions around that time? But um, we would, like I said, we'd be able to go down and find in the domicile area where they've cleaned and where she's, where she's been keeping the infant. And then, um, like probably maybe even the first time she ever set him down on his feet and, and, and stuff like and, that. And I'm glad you said that because that's where I was going with this. Um, you know, like not to compare them to horses, but when a horse has a, a foal, um, they, they plop out and, you know, within minutes they're on their feet. And giraffes are the same way, and I'm sure there's several other uh, in the animal kingdom that the 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 baby is not sure. picked up and held by its mom, you know, like a human baby is. Yeah, what especially prey animals? Prey animals are usually real fast about getting on their feet. Yeah, and do you have any kind of evidence or anything? Have you? Um, I mean, I, I know that I've seen videos where, you know, whether they're real or not, um, the one really looks real, um, where they're carrying it just like a, a child on its hip. 
Um, how old are they in your estimation, if, or if you even have any evidence to this, how old are they before they're actually mobile on their own? And, okay, and, so, and about what size would you estimate they are? So the first prints we saw where they first set them down, um, and the feet actually look goofy too. They're kind of like our infant's feet a little bit. They're just goofy. You know, they got a real gigantic big toe, a really huge big toe. <laughs> and then, um, it's, it's, it's comical. I mean, it really is. And, uh, and then they got just this stumpy, pudgy little foot. And so, but when that goes down, um, four inches, uh, was the first, that's the smallest. And we figure that's maybe three months after the birth or whatever, mm -hmm. then they're, then they're like, you know, maybe not coddling them to the degree and who knows if they've sent the infant down before that, but that's the smallest we've seen. And it was about three months or four months after the birth episode that we assume. Um, and then, uh, definitely still nursing, you know, they're, they're on the ground while they're still nursing for sure. And how long the nursing takes place in total, we don't know. Um, but, uh, growth is pretty fast. And, um, by the time the foot's about, let's say seven inches, seven and a half inches, then they're, they're, they're bipedal, you know? So before that, then they, if they're, if they're moving on their own, it's knuckle dragon for sure. Or almost all the time though, they're accompanied with another subject, whether it just be a slightly larger subject, maybe with 10 inch feet, um, we'll be walking the other one and the, and, and the, the littler one will be using knuckles and hands. And apparently the other hand is up uh, with the slightly larger individual, like a bigger sister walking the little kid. Mm -hmm. um, and, but we've, we've not seen them to where they look like they're actually standing up and doing stuff without putting their hand down um, like seven and a half inch foot. Are they holding, yeah. are they holding hands or are they, uh, is the, the infant pretty much like holding on to the hair on the side of the leg of the other one? I, don't, I, don't, I wouldn't, I don't know. You know, that's, we've not seen that part of it. So all we see is how close the prints are together. Oh, I, where the I, get you. I get you. Where the tracks are stepping and then you'll have the larger, the 10 inch or whatever will be fully bipedal. And then the smaller adjacent to it will be, um, will be, uh, uh, semi bipedal. So it'll be a one, the, the hand closest to the other subject is not visible and you're seeing the feet print and the knuckle print and the feet print are kind of skewed toed together. So, uh, so it's obviously like, um, walking with or trying to keep up with, yeah. you know, like, like being lifted up when you're not used to it. Kind of, you can see that in the track and you can tell the one hand is occupied. I don't know if it's being carried, uh, in the hand of another subject, or like you said, if it's just grasping, I, I don't have a clue. And generally they don't set them down very long. Um, you'll only see a few marks of the infant like that mm. and they'll set them down. He'll walk a little bit and they'll pick them right back up. And, uh, but, but about seven inches, seven and a half inches and up, then they're little hellions. So <laughs> you'll see like the, like the one we named Jasper, um, it grew up pretty quick and we watched the feet and then the, the, or no, I'm sorry, Amos. So there's Amos and then Jasper was born. So that, so Amos, uh, when he was still small, uh, we saw where it had run out of a thicket. And I mean, you know, Russian olive has two inch thorns on them and it dropped material all the time. So nobody's running around through that stuff. That's not hardened to it. And, uh, but it came out of this thicket and out into the mud of the riverbed. 
And you could see where a larger subject had to step into the mud two steps, grab him, and, you know, off the ground he goes because the track's just, you know, he's running in the mud, and you can tell it's a run. And, and he only gets maybe, you know, 15 or 18 or something steps, and then a large subject comes right off the bank perpendicular and, and has to step in the mud and grab him up and then take him back. And so we've seen that in the tracks. And like the larger subject, there was no marks whatsoever anywhere of that subject, except where it had to go get the little one out of the mud. <laughs> you know what I mean? So it yeah. almost like, hey, you're leaving tracks all over the place, <laughs> knock it off, man, and pull them out of the mud. You know, and so we never even would have known the large one was even there had it not done that. Yeah. Going yeah, so. go, going back one more, and and then I'll let you go because uh, I, I know you're uh, – we're, we're at two and a half hours here and I've got, well, I'm good. Whatever you want to do, man. I'm I've good. got 40,000 other questions I could go. Um, well, maybe not 40,000, but, uh, back to, was it George you said was, a uh, um, kind of an adolescent that you said was crawling to meet you at a pinch point. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and so, and we've been around him a bunch, man. I've whistled back and forth with him on video and, and, you know, they pitch little rocks and, and they try to flank me and stuff like that um, when I've, I get up into the family unit with them. Because I've been in the past, I've been able to get find the family unit and then sneak in and get right up in there within 100 foot of everybody, you know. And they're kind of sp- – they stay spread out. So every time I've ever gone into them, they've been – they've not been in like a cluster together. They've always been, you know, just kind of spread out over an area. And uh, a, lot the, a lot the way gorillas do that too a lot of times. And so – and, uh, but yeah, George was totally different when, when he was around dad, he, he acted, you know, I guess like a young, you know, uh, maybe early twenties or, or maybe even late teen teenager would be when dad comes around and he's got to toughen up. Yeah. And no, then no. he, and then he changed completely. And, and he was, I, I did not trust what was happening at the pinch point because it, to be all honest with you, I did not know that it was the second subject who was approaching the pinch point. I thought it was the big male. Uh-huh. And then after, once I got him on video and everything, and then I realized it was not. And then when we went and assessed everything the next day, we found the hair of George at the pinch point and what he had broken right there. And I, I can't imagine what he was thinking because that made me not even trust him because I trusted them pretty well, you know? And um, I didn't trust him really after that because, you know, what are you going to do, dude? Yeah. You know, I understand dad's here and all this, but, Apparently it didn't how, matter. This how far last are you going to go? Years. <laughs> yeah. This last four years I've been around you guys doesn't seem to matter. Does it, you know, because you, you an animal does not meet you at an ambush point. unless it's going to ambush you Yeah. because it's either you or him and it's, they just don't do that. So, I mean, and, and you can see it on the video. I try it over and over and over. And, uh, each time I try it, man, you can hear a pop or whatever and that pop they hear. That's it's only eight feet. I just can't see him through that shit. And, but he's right there and he's moving with me to that spot, you know, and you have to back up and it got really frustrating because I know they're right through this. And if I get my arm through there, I'm going to get him on camera, but I just, every inch of my being knew if I stick my arm through there, he's just going to pull me the rest of the way through there, you know? So, so have, why else, why else would he go to meet me? You yeah. know, it just didn't make any sense. Have you witnessed, um, witnessed their crawl? Yeah. 
is is it like some of the people describe this uh, kind of unearthly spider-like crawl or is it they more? certainly can <laughs> do that um, it's both all the above but so they can any position you can imagine that an ape or monkey or a spider monkey can get into they can do it and the that spider crawl crap so the one that hits us with the rock in the MJ 13 video on YouTube, the in part two, um, an adolescent, we call him a junior or whatever at that point, because I really don't know. Um, but he was probably seven foot. Uh, he's pretty big on all fours, but see, he came out of the bottoms. We could see him two or three times on the video. You're seeing infrared, um, what the camera sees. So all you get to see is his eye shine when he throws the rock at us, comes out and throws it. But what we're watching is by full moon into their eyes and I'm not looking through the camera mm-hmm. and um, cause we have to watch them because we're surrounded by an entire family unit as close as eight feet. He and this subject that hit us with the rock was 60 feet and no obstruction clear. And we were watching him come up out of the bottoms and up onto this, this white Sandy road thing that was there. And, uh, and he was, he was long and low, you know? So there's actually uh, a picture there are a little video someone got on the reservation that was put out not too long ago. And people are, Oh, that's a bear. Or that's a coyote or whatever. And it's, it's in real eroded, very bland tan, uh, edge of a little Mesa lands. And there's a, a brown thing that goes up and through a rock gap and around the corner. And you look at, it, it's rather long. And then the, the close up pictures that they've zoomed up on it, it looks like it's like a hominid, but very stretched out, you know? So, and that's, that's how we saw him crawl. So, he was crawling on all fours, but he was long. He was not up. You know what I mean? Yeah, he was, yeah. his legs were stretched out way behind him and his arms were way out in front of him. And then when he threw the rock, he did not have to change that position. He could hold that position on three points Wow! with enough stability to throw that rock and nail us. And like, and that rock had to be doing 50 or 60 miles an hour. It with like a, killed us with it. accuracy. <laughs> oh yeah, man. Yeah. 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 I mean, yeah. Big time. And, and it was a sidearm throw. You know, he flicked it, basically. He put his arm out and flicked it, and it came in that hot. And But his eye is probably three feet off the ground And he, when he stretched out that long. And I know when earlier that evening when J.C. Johnson, Jack Carey, George Harvey, um, uh, Der- uh, Derek, I think Brian Key, or one of those guys were there, and they got to see the large male face-to-face looking at them over a log. And the log wasn't even maybe three foot tall, right? And he was completely behind that log except for his fingers and his his top of his head and his nose. And But he was so big that the only way he could have been fitting behind that log is if he was laying on his belly. Yeah. You know, and he was perfectly comfortable in that position. And so, and then uh, the night we were in Michigan – and I was t- talking to Jason Kenzie up there. He had never experienced these things. And I kind of helped advise and, and train some of those guys on, on the process of getting to them and how to, how to do this. And it led to them, like Blake said, that they had more, more things happen and, and, and saw more things in two days during that little deal we did than they had collectively as a group of over 20 people in six years. And so we were very successful. And that night, uh, Blake and Jason Kenzie went down onto a lower road uh, that we had already kind of pre-planned the location. And we had, I had been recording grunting and stuff from about a mile away in there. And we actually recorded a howl from down in there. And so they went around to go retrieve 
a recorder that was down there and they ran into a couple of them. They actually passed a spot and I had taught them about how to track based on certain forms of tree breaks Mm -hmm. where they leave the limb hanging. And he said that when they walked in there, there was nothing, everything was clear. And as they walked back out, some of the, there was those tree hanging markers that were done right behind them in the dark. And as they progressed a little farther, two subjects stepped out of the trees in front of them. And it was just out of the flashlight light, but within the eye shine light. And, um, and actually they were so surprised. Jason Kenzie's an animal filmmaker mm-hmm. and, uh, and he didn't even film them. And then he, he had the camera on himself and he forgot. And then, uh, but they were there for a good 10 minutes with them. And then the, but the part I'm getting to is I had told Jason, if they ever, ever show themselves to you in front of you, there's one behind you. I said, so closer. So look, you know, always spin around and look. I don't care if there's one standing in front of you or not. Spin around and look because you probably got one grab and reach back there because that one's not going to stand out unless another one can take care of business if anything goes wrong. Yeah. And, and so he did. He said he heard my words. He was looking at them too and heard my words and he just, he spun around, but he, he spun around. He had the camera on himself and when he spun around, he kept it on himself. Right. <laughs> and so, but right behind him, just a dozen feet away was a subject standing there and it immediately dropped to the ground full flat and took off sideways across the road flat. So if you, so if you did the federal face in the dirt, right. Uh, you know, hands hands in the air flat on the ground and just like that, just flat drop, but then move sideways looking at you locked on you the whole time it's going sideways. And went across, and I told him, buddy, you just got the first, you see a first one spider crawl. He said, I'd have never seen it. If I didn't hear your words in my head, I was transfixed on what was in front of me. He said, I just heard your words and just turned around. He said, I'd have never seen it. And I told him, that's one of the rarest things you'll ever see. You know, that's, that's because you don't, when they're in that position, they're stealth mode. You're you're never going to normally see that. So, so generally, unless you're really fortunate, you've got to go through an awful lot of encounters before you're going to see them you know, uh, pulling that move. But at the same time, we see the younger ones getting into crazier positions more than the adults too. So, um, and it's, it kind of goes to figure, uh, just the way youngers are, you know? Yeah. Um, but like, and following prints, I see the same movements, um, tracking them all the time. So most people track feet print and 90% of the time I'm tracking six to eight to 10 feet off the ground, not on the ground. And the other 20, 30% of the time, I'm not following feet print. So I'm following impressions from their movement. So they move on their fingertips, on the sides of their fists, and they do that a lot. So if you put your hand on its side, pinky down on a table, and curl your fingers, and then look at what that mark looks like, it looks like kind of a paisley Mark, that's more common than anything else. And nobody picks that out as a, as a Bigfoot mark, but they cruise all the time on the edge like that. And, uh, and instead of stepping in the center of a soft zone, a lot of times they'll put the edge of their feet and the edge of their hands like that up against obstructions on the sides of things and kind of bridge gaps. So they don't mark up the bottom. And so, so that's how I track his fingertips, toe tips, and we see them on their fingers and toes or knuckles and toes, either one a lot. Like they move around on just their toes, just, just the two or two or three front toes and their sides of their hands a lot. And no one identifies any of that. It doesn't look like a footprint. 
Um, you know, the big ones damn near look like cattle uh, tracks. You know, they're so big. And, and you have these two big divots. And the two divots will be the, the two big toes. And then everything else is off the, off the, off the surface, you know, so the strength to be able to do that and the dexterity. Yeah. Yeah. And do it every day. Like it's nothing. That's why, you know, I have a high strength ratio for my weight and my size and I can do all, I can do most of that, but I cannot do it with the ease. They can do it. And I certainly cannot, I can pick myself off the ground at full arms and leg span, like a spider crawl thing, but I can't move. Yeah. You know, I can a little bit, you know what I mean? But I can't move like they can. They can just move easily and effortlessly without the body even undulating. Just, you know, so, but it's just the same thing. It's just, we would be that way too. If we were doing what they're doing every day, we would be the same way. You know, not as, not as good at it, but. Yeah. Any evidence, uh, about their, their using the trees? Yeah. All the time. You bet. They spend a lot of time up there. Yeah, they, they use everything. So cliff walls, man, we've seen tracks go to cliff walls that the, I was with the free climber guy and he said, dude, I'm, you'd have to pay me to go up that one and see where they just gone up at speed. So not even take two steps at the bottom. In other words, like be in, in full stride and go up the wall, <laughs> not even put both feet down at the bottom of the cliff. Just, you know, and trees, same thing. It's just whatever will hold them. Um, do you think that's a, do you think that's a, a an acceptable, um, explanation for why so many times there will be tracks that just terminate and yeah and and then there's you know left right left right left and then that's it and there's no no other sign of exit yeah and um the only ones that not that i wouldn't say are always like that so sometimes they'll they'll fool you in the way they're leaving tracks to where they no longer leave feet print anymore. And in some forest conditions, they can get away from, from that without leaving enough mark, like fingers and toes on logs and weirdness. And to where you just don't recognize what you're seeing with some people. Other times, yeah, you've seen clear trackways just terminate. Right. And if there's trees there, yeah, it's probably just going a boreal. And then, um, because the crew sideways, even through big trees with an eight or 10 foot gap is not that big a deal. As long as it'll hold the weight of the subject, it doesn't matter to them. They can hop across that like it's nothing. So even a smaller one can cruise gaps like that. Um, now, concerning tracks like in an open snow field, mm-hmm. uh, that's different. But as I've said in the past, I've seen photos of deer prints in an open snow field that stop. I've seen where human disappearances and they've had open snow fields and people tracks just stop. So what's occurring to them may be more congruent to what's occurring to other species and humans at certain times, more so than them doing anything intentionally to, you know, blip out of, out of reality or whatever. Something's happening, but I think that it's not, you know, being intended by the, by the Bigfoot. I think that it's more of a victim of whatever that is the same as the rest of the species. Oh, that's interesting. Robert, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to do this with me. Um, like I said, I've, I've got hours more of conversation I could do with you. And hopefully, if you're willing, uh, we can revisit this again another time. Um, it's been Yeah, I would love to, Eric. It's been my, my privilege, my pleasure to be here. You're a great host, I'll tell you, because it's, 
been real easy to get into the detail of this stuff. You, you do a real good job. I appreciate that. Well, I appreciate that. Um, again, for the listeners, please uh, rattle off all your social media, all the uh, all the places they can find your information. Okay. Yeah. So on the web, you can just go to criderexploration.com. And, and for reference, the Crider's K-R-Y-D-E-R. And uh, we've, we've not got a lot on the website yet. We do have a store up. I'd really appreciate you taking a look at what's there. If anything looks interesting, you know, uh, help us out by making a purchase. Um, we also have developed some custom gear like our parabolic uh, microphone that'll uh, it'll, it'll outperform anything on the market. It's five times the range of a 27-inch Kohler, and it's only 12 inches in diameter. Um, and they're real reasonable. You can check that out. They're called the KXPD3. And then um, we've also, we've got a cryptid archive there and ancient history and ancient civilizations archives and things there under under uh, research. And um, But we don't have a whole lot in it, but check back and uh, sign up with us over there at uh, criterexpression.com so you can uh, be uh, aware of when we start to fill those databases. You can also find us on YouTube at KX space Crider Exploration. You can find us on Facebook. We have a, uh, a Bigfoot Pay, uh, group up and that's called KX Cryptid Hominin Research Group NM Bigfoot and you can also we have a group just called Crider Exploration for our other research and studies that, and, and uh, we do the Bigfoot stuff there too and we also have a Facebook page that's Crider Exploration you can also find us on uh, we're on Patreon if you want to help out patreon.com Crider Exploration we are on Twitter um, although we don't post to it a lot we're also on instagram although we don't post to it a lot but we're pretty well everywhere uh, just hit us up you got all the bases covered all right and sir it, again thank you so much let's uh let's do this again and talk some more weirdness and it's been an absolute pleasure oh i agree but my pleasure as well man it really has been refreshing uh doing this with you eric and just let me know and uh, we'll rig it up but thank you sir yeah thank you I want to hear your story. I want to hear your experience. So email me at contact.uncomfortable at gmail.com. If you enjoy the show, then leave us a rating and a review on iTunes. Share the show with your friends. Share the show on social media. Make sure to like us on Facebook and follow us on Instagram and Twitter, all at Uncomfortable Podcast. And until next week, my friends, stay uncomfortable. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low-net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co.